Today, we get deep and philosophical talking about the economy of sound. Less is more. We'll have an interview with Greg Skidmore, professional singer and conductor, and our composer profile is on Orlando de Lasso. Or is it de Lasso's? This is Early Music Monday. So in the interview that we do with Greg Skidmore coming up in a little bit, you'll hear him talk about the economy of sound. And when he first said that, I was really intrigued by what he meant. And then my mind kind of started going really fast on how I've seen that principle in some of my favorite pieces of music and composers and styles and and how I've, over the years, I've kind of grown into the idea that less is more and that subtlety is the real art form. Um, I don't like heavy handedness. I don't like overt emotional emotiveness. And I think I'm a little bit unique in that regard. Um, but maybe not, I'm not really sure. But I think that subtlety in art and subtlety in music has a lot more power than heavy-handedness. So there's a lot of ways that the economy of sound or kind of uh, what I would say as musical subtlety, I mean, you could break that down into so many different categories. One way that I think of it is Renaissance music. And this is something that Greg and I kind of get into a little bit, but there's not a lot of what we would consider contemporary emotive, evocative techniques going on in terms of great amounts of dissonance, um, uh, extremes in vocal range, really complex and diverse textures. And so in order to convey a message in the Renaissance, they didn't have as many tools, I guess, as we do today. And that's something that Tony Silvestri mentioned in the interview is thinking about kind of cinematic, the cinematic quality that a lot of choral music has today. And while I understand that and think that that's true, I also think that the same amount of expressivity can be had in music from the Renaissance and music that's much more subtle and has fewer elements. Because by breaking music down to its smallest components, you can really explore the depths of those components to their fullest capacity all the time. Some of those basic elements would be rhythms. Rhythm can only be divided into two or three. There's no other subdivision. No matter how many twos and how many threes there are, it's some kind of combination of those two things. Consonance and dissonance, what defines those two things? How do they interact? The text and the music, half steps and whole steps. You get into non-Western traditions and even some Italian traditions in Ferrara, which we'll talk about in another episode. You get into semitones and stuff. 
but that's all kind of still even under the umbrella of consonance and dissonance. So in a piece like a Renaissance piece, you find those really basic moments of expressiveness and you dig really deep into why they exist in that moment and you draw special attention to it through maybe just a little bit added dynamic level or taken a, or you know subtracted dynamic level or maybe you slow the tempo just a little bit to kind of accentuate that subtlety and let the music tell the story itself there's a really amazing quote by Arvo Pert Arvo Pert I would consider someone who follows this philosophy so he said this you can kill people with sound if you can kill then maybe there is also the sound that is the opposite of killing and the distance between these two points is very big and you are free you can choose in art everything is possible but everything is not necessary and i love that i love i think that's that last sentence in particular in art everything is possible but everything is not necessary and so to really take and say, what exactly am I trying to say? And then look, you know, think about minimalism or and, and the music of Arvo Pert, Tintinabuli, like this idea that this one triad is kind of the base of the entire, well, re- really like more than half of his compositional output is based on just the idea of a triad mimicking the sound of a bell and that's it you know how do you really find every kind of nook and cranny of what defines a triad and how do you expound that into something vast without being heavy-handed i think it's amazing So the Renaissance composers were masters of highly economic sound. The uses, I mean, again, it depends on what composers you're talking about and whether you're talking about early Renaissance versus later Renaissance, but the use of dissonance, you know, those notes just like rubbing together and creating that sense of discomfort. How often were those used compared to the sound of consonance and clarity? If you use less dissonance, the dissonance means more. Think about the music of Palestrina. There's not, or some of the early Renaissance composers like John Taverner or John Shepard or uh, Christopher Ty. There's some pieces where I can't find a single incident of dissonance. Or maybe there's one or a couple that last for the span of an eighth note. You take that, and then you take the music of Thomas Tallis, just like a half to a full generation later, and you have relatively similar sound, but then all of a sudden you have these really harsh cross-relations where you have like a flat and a natural at the same time. And he doesn't have to use it very often, but it it is like noteworthy for sure, and you notice it. And so I think in that way, less is more and subtlety is where real art is made. And if we can't, if we can't master, you know, the basics 
uh, the basic building blocks of sound, then then that communication and rhetoric and storytelling and evocativeness and is all lost when we get to larger scale, more tools, more complex things in later centuries. The composers that really are effective are the ones who mastered the economy of sound before adding more elements on top of it. Because those basic elements are the foundation for all music. And they always will be. Even if music changes into something that we can't even fathom at this time, the building blocks of sound, of the literal frequencies, will always be what they are, of meter, of rhythm, even in music of different cultures. You know, Hebrew scales, the basics of them are the same and influence Hebrew music today. Middle Eastern music, Asian music, African music, South American music. It, they are the building blocks. And uh, yeah, I'm going to exercise and try really hard to exemplify that principle by stopping there and giving you some time to think about that on your own. This topic is definitely going to come up in future episodes. Okay, now we turn to our interview with Greg Skidmore. Greg Skidmore has a killer resume and has done some amazing things. I'll let him tell his biography, biographical story, uh, because it's pretty amazing. And some of the work he's doing with Renaissance music in Canada and the, the groups that he sings with in, in England. He sung with Tenebrae, the Talos Scholars, the Sixteen, and E. Fagiolini, which we get into a little bit. So without further ado, here is Greg Skidmore. So nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Thanks so yeah, much. Yeah, you too. This. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. Thanks very I'm, much. I'm kind of ashamed to, to say that I like early music. I don't know if I'm as much of a specialist as, as uh, fellow colleagues, but how long it took me to discover E. Fagiolini. Oh, I, yeah. had heard, I had heard things, you know, kind of, it was another group, but, but really like a deep dive where I spent three or four hours just kind of like <laughs> going through like listening to sing the score and going through your recordings and like scouring through the website and reading bios and so it was only like probably two weeks ago I was where have I been you know <laughs> like this that's, is amazing that's, that's great but but maybe before we get there that's a good point before we get to Ifagellini I'd love to hear kind of how you got into to singing how what took you to England um, and then how did you kind of end up being an early music specialist yeah, right. Um, so I was a pretty musical kid. Uh, as a as a as a boy, I sang in a I sang as a as a boy treble, um, in a little. Uh, well, it's not really little. A, a a community choir in in the town where I grew up, which was London, Ontario, in Canada, in in southern Canada, very close to sort of an hour away from Detroit, Michigan. Oh, wow. um, is is where I is where I grew up. That organization, actually, uh, by the standards of of children's and youth choirs in in North America and 
around the world really in in a secular context so so community-based children's and youth choirs yeah. that organization which is called Amabile um, is actually uh, very uh, good and and yeah. um, offers huge amounts of singing opportunities and touring opportunities and we did some recordings and competitions and all that kind of stuff so that was my singing as a child yeah. now that that was um, nothing like the amount of singing that boy choristers in cathedrals have but I did sing every week and I was it was in a pretty musical household my parents weren't professional musicians but they loved music awesome. um, <clears throat> when I was a teenager coming through that kind of mainstream musical world and and you know I learned the violin and I did music in high school and stuff um, my sister who is uh, a bit older than me and is is actually grew up to be a, a, a musicologist with a specialty in medieval music. That's amazing. Um, she, she sort of discovered Renaissance polyphonic music and, yeah. and mainly the, the, the sort of mainstream guys, Bird and Talis and, right. and that kind of stuff. And, and by that time I was kind of hanging around with her and, and singing with her in little groups and, yeah. and, and doing stuff like that. And, and so I suppose it was through that, that I first, heard who bird was i mean i remember when i was in high school and i did we did basic music history in you know in yeah. like grade 12 and 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 i was desperate to write on william bird and yeah. <laughs> and every, everyone else was like what do you what what are you talking about who's, you know, who's who what's going on and and i think i i think i there was some exam that i wrote where i convinced everybody that i was clever by mentioning the name I mean I had no idea what anything about him or anything right, right. but so that was already when I was in high school and and it just came about through the music really I mean I just heard this this music mainly Bird and Talis and mm -hmm. and a little bit of of um the, the English guys really right. um and and I was transfixed I just never had heard anything like it before yeah. and and uh I mean, yeah, it just and it was somewhere else like it, it the when you really like hear it and you do it even once, like there's something different about it and it, it really is timeless. And it's and really I, sometimes hard to kind of put into words. I mean, again, we could I could write a scholarly and go on, but what is it in like the teenage brain that that well, and it's, I've, know, I've thought about this a lot actually, and and I think it's. I mean, it has, there's a lot going on in yeah. Renaissance polyphonic music and, and there's an enormous amount to, to concentrate on, if yeah. that makes any sense. There's, yeah. and, and you, can, you can switch your focus mm. all the time. And also at the same time, if you're not listening in that way, the, the pieces have this kind of, 40,000 foot view about them yeah. where if you if you don't quote unquote like listen in to the counterpoint and if you just if you just listen to the sum total of it it's there's for some pieces especially pieces on a bigger scale you know six parts eight parts and even bigger there's yeah. this there's this majesty if that's I mean yeah. if you'll allow a kind of self-important word I totally um, agree though and and also the the there's there's a whole bunch there's there's the sound of it the timbre of voices mm -hmm. 
the um the 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 range the the, the timbre of the, of like the, it's like sort of the choral sound i mean renaissance polyphonic music is is the archetypal choral music i think yeah. Yeah. um and for those guys the choir was was you know held the same importance in terms of their compositional life as as from the 18th century onward the symphony orchestra did and and so you know the best composers wrote the best music to be sung by choirs mm. so you know it's it's, it's the... like that. that's so real though because you think about the 18th 19th century guys and their monum opus or whatever are often symphonies or or requiems or like large masterworks but it's the same thing in reverse for the Renaissance that you just said, they're these mass, these monument opus, great works, but choral. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, and I think that that, um, I think that they, I think everybody. What am I trying to say? I don't think that choirs have necessarily gone down in people's estimation, and and people have always written for choirs, and especially in the 20th century in like the second half of the 20th century in America in particular, yeah. you guys have done a huge amount for, for, for choral music and, and for, for the, the vehicle of the choir as, as, right. you know, being a musical instrument. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it was, it was more central for the guys who wrote that music. And, and, and it was more, um, it was kind of, it was the pinnacle. It was, yeah. It, as as I say, you know, it was it was the symphony orchestra. It was if you're going to be a good composer and if you're going to be on the top of that world, what do you do? Well, you write call, what we would call choral music, but what they wrote was just music, good yeah. counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. You know? exactly. um, and they and, all and, sang too, which or, or played and or played organ. So they 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 just understood how, and to me. I think that's what draws me to it as well is just like the lines are so singable. Mm. Just want to keep like, Oh yeah, these four measures just want to sing it all day kind of thing. You just end up singing tiny little segments of it because yeah. it's so idiomatic for the voice and, and it just fits so well. Well, I think, I think the other thing, and this is sort of bordering on a bit more geeky academic stuff is that, is that the other kind of music that those guys had in their heads all the time was Gregorian plain song. Yeah. And and I think for anybody in a liturgical environment that, again, in the 16th century in, in, in particular, almost everybody who we would ever know uh, was was primarily employed by the church. Right. The 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 predominant musical world that they would have known would not have been polyphony, I, I don't think. Right. It, it, it would have been. Uh, it would have been Gregorian plain song, and it would have been not even the more florid melodies. It would have been the simpler melodies of like psalm tones. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You know, very very simple sort of like like a reciting tone with a little bit of a inflection here and there. And 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 the reason why I'm saying that is that the vocal quality of that music and the vocal quality, the lyricism of plain song which was evolved by that point for 400, 500 years, longer than that, yeah. uh, uh, to, to, to fit the voice and, and, and all the technical stuff of, 
of you know stepwise movement and right. leaps by fourth that are then you know like yeah. inwardly all all that kind of basic stuff yeah. had been had been evolved as i say for hundreds of years for the voice yeah. and so when you have the the guys coming to it in the 16th century they they had such a vocal understanding of of how to write music yeah um and and so you're absolutely right in that they created these these uh melodies that are hugely gratifying to sing as melodies in their own right like on their own right and then and then when you put them all together it's magic well yeah magic is the best word that's so real and and i think that you know i've talked i have a good friend that um studied private composition with a, a Juilliard professor. And it's like, the reason is because it's primal. There's something really primal about it that cuts across culture, cuts across everything. There's something primal about looking backwards and then pu like pulling from it. And like, these are the things I think that, that I would define as kind of primal to Western music is, is these kinds of things that we've been talking about. And I think that's, yeah it's hard to put into words for me. I don't know, you know other than magic because it is. And until you experience it, it's so hard to see why some of us like nerd out so much about it. But it's like, well, well I think, it, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, like hear it in the space too. And I think it's important to realize that, that um, in early music in particular, um, there's an enormous amount of academic work that goes into it there has been and there is currently and lots of performers take a very academic approach and it can be very intellectual and very fact-based and and informed and all these sorts of things and for me uh it's always so important to remember actually that this is this is music this is an art and right. and there is something i believe right at the bottom of what makes art art that is about the aesthetic experience of it. It is about something that, that can't really be explained in a history paper. There's, yeah. there's, you know, it's, it's, if these guys wanted to write treatises, they would have, and some of them did, but, right. but they also wrote music. They put notes on a page and they gave us instructions to yeah. do things that, that are astounding. Yeah. And, and, and there has to be that you have to remember that. And it has to be more than um, an exploration of a kind of cultural history or an exploration of, of uh, like, like a curiosity. Uh, it, it has to move you on a deeper aesthetic, emotional way. Um, and, and so I'm completely with you on the kind yeah. of whoa it's awesome that's amazing like so, and and you and you and then and then you spend a lifetime a trying to figure out what that awesome thing is right. but also you spend a lifetime trying to figure out what decisions you can make as a performer both in the in the prep and also kind of getting yourself in the right state of mind like all the million decisions that we make as 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 performers yeah. to kind of unlock that awesome and and make yeah. it better and make it sweeter and more powerful and yeah. and you never understand and you still you're still reliant on inspiration and and right. and spontaneity and all these sorts of things yeah. as you should be and it's and it's this constant uh um 
desire to understand your craft and understand what you're working with, what you're doing, whilst also not sort of squashing it. And I say sometimes to people that musicians are playing with fire in that, in that, in that we lose we lose respect for the material that we are working with music sound tone yeah. rhythm we yeah. lose respect for the power of that at our peril and in fact you can't ever really have the most powerful performance unless you do understand that it is essentially a bit of magic somewhere yeah, yeah that's really profound to me i really I don't even have a follow-up. I don't even know what to say other than, (laughs) you know, because I think we can, like another interview I did, I was talking to a musicologist and she's like, yeah, a lot, musicologists have done this amazing work of doing all this research um, and it's vital, but now it's kind of been put in a museum. And so we got to find a way to take it back out of the museum and then somehow let it live and helping singers and conductors and audience members have those experiences with it that you just mentioned of the magic and the and 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 finding a way to let it live then that kind of keeps that is what keeps it alive you know i've i've found i've i've found strangely um this to me and and to you is is the most obvious thing this is not these 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 pieces of music are not museum pieces they're yeah. not things they're not curiosities they're not things to be sort of um puzzled over um <laughs> but i would say that i have met people who who don't agree and in fact what they what they see is magic Mm. They see interest, they see value in the oldness of it or in the conservation of it. They see, they see value in the fact that, that this is part of our history, part of our heritage that's not being forgotten. And that that in itself is, is part of the value of, of what you're doing. And while I don't dispute that, I think that it's not the most important thing and that it shouldn't ever become the most important thing. And I think, I think one of, one of the ways that I would possibly problematize or criticize the the past, I don't know, 40 years of the early music movement or so is that, is that the line between sort of historical interest and an intellectual curiosity and just blowing your head off with with great you know piece yeah. of art right that 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 line has is kind of shifting around a little bit and yeah. and it's always flirting with sort of maybe being too far in one direction and right. and and you know you 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 come at that in a bunch of different ways for you know every every person that you encounter right. but yeah. but there is there is a pattern there and i think that we need to remain vigilant against the 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 sort of um you know overly academic overly intellectualized approach right which is something now i mean i would love to kind of go through some of ifagiolini's approach because i think that that's what ifagiolini does so well is that it's like 
I mean, I just watched the stag hunt just a week ago and I'm like, nice. man. Like, are you kidding me? This is the greatest <laughs> thing ever. I was like dying. I was in my office where I teach at like 6 PM. No one's there like belly laughing to myself. Like, nice. <laughs> like, nice. That's good. That's what, you know, and I mean, I already knew who uh, Jean-Acan was and kind of was already familiar with some of his techniques, but then if I wasn't, I'd be like, they're singing the set. Like it just brings it to a whole new level of relevance to me. Yeah. So, yeah. What has your experience been then being in Fagiolini with some of the 20th century and the Renaissance things that you've done? Like, I think E. Fagiolini is, is a, is a unique group. And that's because Robert Hollingworth is a very unique guy. Yeah. And, and he, the, the thing I like most about Robert is that he is um, uh, someone described someone else this way, actually, but, but it's, it's a hugely apt description for him that his threshold for boredom uh, is, is, is either way too high or way too low. I can't figure out which one it is, but, but yeah. he, 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 he gets bored incredibly easily yeah. and that he, and that in or, and, and, but he hates it. And so he, uh, forces himself to come up with new stuff all the time and yeah. and it's not it's not necessarily novelty for novelty's sake it's it's right. it's that his it's that his mind isn't satisfied by right right by things that 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 not necessarily that other people have done either it's just that it's just that he has an idea and then he's like well that's a bit boring right. and like he's he's bored by his own ideas often yeah and so he kind of he wow. just turns everything up yeah. And, and, and he, and he does crazy things because if he didn't do crazy things, he'd be bored. And then he can't and, be bored. He's like Sherlock Holmes of music. Right? Just like, yeah. 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 A little bit. Yeah. I mean, and, and the funny thing about him is that he also has a huge academic interest in it as well. And is, and is fascinated by the academic intellectual side of it. And, and if you watch sing the score or any of the rest of the stuff that he's done over the past 25, 30 years, there's, there's always a huge, really rigorous academic side to it and i think that's also partly because his mind also is interested in that kind of thing and and has to have it yeah yeah but i think i think what sets him apart is that he doesn't um he kind of never is satisfied with anything and he's certainly not satisfied with only an intellectual approach right and and so so he can think that he has a great idea or that he has a great, you know, uh, understanding of the past, but that's kind of not enough. And he has to make it, he has to make it somehow pack a punch now or somehow do something now. And, right. and the, one of the really big famous projects that I think kind of established Ifagellini on the, on the scene was, was the full Monteverdi that, that took place in, in sort of the, early early noughties i think like 2001 2002 2003 i think i'm not quite sure on the dates of that i never did any of those performances um but that was a collaboration with john le bouchardier who is who has also directed the stag and and he's he's an opera director right pardon the amouge bouche one as well right that video he wasn't he oh well he did that yeah he did the little music video of the okay. um the the uh the the Jean Francais, um, yeah, 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 Ode, Ode à la Gastronomie. Yeah, yeah, that one. That one. Um, yeah. So he he did that music video. That that was less of his 
of of his sort of creative idea than than certainly for Monteverdi, which was this idea of of you 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 go into a a restaurant and you you know it's an Ifagini concert, but you don't really know what's going on, and you turn up and it's a restaurant and you start sitting down and someone brings you some food, and then all of a sudden like people two tables over start yelling at each other in Italian, and and you notice that that there are actually like uh, six couples and that one of them one of each couple is a singer and one of each couple is an actor and they are living out this kind of romantic yeah. story right in the middle of a restaurant and and yeah. and that that i think surprised people in a way that yeah. uh, certainly at that point immersive theater i mean i i'm not really a theater expert but i kind of think that they were ahead of the curve in terms of immersive theater and and that kind of stuff and that really put them on the the map the first the first few projects with Ifaglini i did were were just concert projects and and sure. a few uh a few little recording well some 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 bigger recordings and and stuff um i did a project with them called betrayal which was another John Le Bouchardier project, which was music, um, which was similar in concept to Full Monteverdi, uh, except instead of actors and singers, it was um, singers and contemporary dancers. Right. Um, and, and it was, again, a, a series of six couples, and uh, the music was all by Gesualdo. Um, but this time, instead of being in a restaurant, it was like a bit more gritty and a bit more sort of uh crime right. crime drama we we one, one of them we did in a warehouse the other one we did in a in a like a parking lot yeah, wow. um and it was also like a promenade performance so the audience was all on their feet uh and they were intermingling amongst all of the um couples wow. the the singing and the lighting for the whole thing was also um from flashlights held by the audience oh wow so so there wasn't any lighting. So it's a bit more kind of like gritty film noir sort of right. like crime drama kind of thing. And there, and everybody, oh, uh, all all six of the dancers uh, got murdered by wow. by the, the singers. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and and that, I mean that was that was that that the the thing about that is that it required uh everything that i had in my sort of skill set so yeah. so you you had to be able to sing the music uh, very well right but then we did it all from memory and also we were split up over these massive spaces and so you had to kind of do it and um waldo like that's and it's just waldo <laughs> yeah so so i mean in in a 2020 we we were all kind of we were doing like singing in isolation before singing in isolation was a thing like like i you know i was singing baritone and the tenor would 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 have been 50 yards away Jeez. separated by 100 people who were in the audience and also at this time i was kind of vaguely writhing around with a contemporary dancer right. and and uh in my case poisoning her <laughs> and 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 so so that so the, the musical um you had to know the music absolutely completely inside out totally right. you had to be able to 
essentially sing it on your own and sing all the rest of the parts in your head and desperately try to reach out and grab little snippets of other music, other yeah. noise, other sound that you could, that you could find. Um, and also you had to commit to this uh, very strange story, the atmosphere of it, and also working with contemporary dancers. I don't know if you've, if you've done that, but, but working with contemporary dance is uh, astonishing and challenging and, uh, incredibly full on and yeah. dancers in particular, be, just because of the way that, that it's right. your whole body. It, there's a level of, of, of commitment that is um, often in choral music, you can put on a nice suit and sort of trot on stage and, and right. everything's, everything's quite safe and you're kind of hiding behind your music stand and, or your music folder and, right. and, you know, <laughs> everything's going to be okay. And you know that, that you're going to go to the pub after the concert and it's all, it's all all right. But right. When, when you're, when you're rolling around on the floor of a parking lot and, you know, <laughs> in my case, we, we had, we had a huge problem with, with the dancers, uh, especially in the, in the parking lot, the dancers got cold because they spent too much time on the ground and you're just like, what? is this renaissance music like what's going on um oh my gosh that sounds like insane like my mind is blown right now and it, and it, that was that was pretty cool and that was that was my sort of big Evangelini moment i just thought sure. i, I kind of knew that they were pretty cool up to that point but but this this is something that i had never done before and and yeah. totally just just changed my understanding of of uh of, of what you could do with the music. Yeah. And it seemed, it seems like it was in the moment you're all like, this is pretty special, you know, kind of thing where you can just tell that you're in the midst of something really neat. So besides that project and other projects, I guess I'd say Ifa Jolini, maybe 10,000 feet view, like you said before, versus singing with groups like Talis Scholars or the 16 or something, just vocally, I guess, what's different what adjustments do you make com compared to the two groups if angelini is almost always one voice to a part gotcha. um so you have more flexibility and more freedom but you also uh have nowhere to hide so you have to uh, vocally you have to commit to and sustain your line with more vocal um solidity i suppose yeah. Than than maybe you would in a, in a bigger group, with the with the the, I mean, there's differences with the Tal scholars and the sixteen Tal scholars is most often two per part. So, right. so you have you have a little bit of a kind of partnership in the Tal scholars, whereas the sixteen the, the the sixteen is 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 slightly bigger again. So it's it's right. it's more of a kind of section that you're working with. Evangelini is is one per part. So so it's more, um, it's slightly more personal you get to make more decisions because yeah. uh, because you don't have to run anything past your partner right. um you can decide largely you can decide basic things like where you're going to breathe right. um uh and 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 in terms of uh like technical stuff like enunciation of the text you can almost decide entirely how long a rolled r is going to be how long an s is going to be if you're doing it if it's contrapuntal and you're doing it on your own and nobody else is doing it with you right um and and so there's a lot of more freedom in that. In terms of, I mean, I think probably 
reading into your question you, you want me to talk about like vocal production and and, oh, and vibrato I, and all that kind if, of stuff if you want to go for it because I I, yeah. I am super fascinated just about the aesthetic too even from even between a group like Jeswaldo Six um, I had a great discussion with Owen Park a little bit about that too and about when he conducts versus when he sings and and some of those technical things so so from your perspective just in like some brief I guess or as in-depth as you want to, what are some aesthetic vocal and vocal technique things that you do differently when you're singing, even if it was like the Talis Scholars one and apart versus Ifagellini one and apart? Yeah, sure. Um, so Robert's is, Robert is more interested in the, uh, the emotional and the dramatic and the, um, I would say, difficult to describe. So, so he's more interested, obviously, the emotional and the dramatic, but also the kind of, the the, I want to say artistic, but what I mean is not abstract. That's what I maybe mean. So, so, the 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 kind of things that you can do with your voice that have to do with the words or have to do with with um uh the, the how you're trying to move a listener or or something like yeah. that whereas uh, a lot of other groups and and i think the tal scholars not i mean the tal scholars have have recorded and perform such an incredible range of music right that, that i think sometimes they do uh they 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 do approach everything but but i think in 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 average they are looking for clarity of yeah. of sound and also for a timbre of sound in particular they're looking for um uh they they're looking for a kind of a strength of sound i think uh, a reliability of sound of um and um, whereas I think with Ifagellini, it's much more about um, what's the character, what's the emotion, what's the what's the vulnerability, what's the what's at stake, yeah. um, uh, and 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 taking risks, um, taking vocal risks, right. um, and and it's so it's it's much it's much less about a crystalline sphere. Yeah, and it's much more about sort of dirt under your fingernails. Yeah, and 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 in that that way, vocally, you, you so you know in the Tal Scholars, you will make sure that the line is uh, um, uh, uniform, is legato, is um, clear, and and that you'll make sure that that you are. Um, really dialed in to your to your your voice partner so that the two of you are absolutely working as one unit yeah. um whereas with Ifagellini it's it's um your your mind isn't necessarily thinking about the the note as much as maybe the word mm. uh and cool. um and and I, I like to think about it in terms of 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 what's at risk what what's yeah. what you know almost how far am I going to push this? Yeah. Um, and, and, 
you know, it's the difference between driving a Rolls Royce 35 miles an hour and feeling awesome because you're driving a Rolls Royce 35 miles an hour (laughs) or driving a dune buggy to the edge of a cliff at a hundred miles an hour and also feeling awesome because you're, I mean, it's, they're, they're equally, they're equally amazing. And, and if, if you're driving a 250,000 pound luxury car, you know, through the countryside in Britain and, and I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. But then equally, there's the dune buggy in the desert that, yeah. that is I feel you know, like probably more like you. And I would want moments of doing both, you know, and there's there's I think that's what makes it so great is that they're they, they kind of established niches almost of this kind of what we specialize in. And it kind of gives this really wide kind of portrait of different choral aesthetics all in one country, which we could go on for hours about <laughs> about that but i think that that's really fascinating and when you're so i mean to piggyback off of that when you're doing a project and you're you know maybe a bigger project for any of the groups doesn't really matter what 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 are some things that you do to kind of stay fit and keep from just wearing out cuz I don't really feel like I have a vocal identity and kind of this weird lazy tenor who just, you know, <laughs> it's just like so hard to, to navigate. And it's, anyway, so, so what are some things you do to stay on top of it? Um, first of all, it's not easy. I think a lot of people think it's easy or, or that there's a magic sort of solution to it. It's, it's not. Vocal technique is really hard, just generally. And you can learn, you can learn about your voice forever uh and 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 it's like any muscle and it changes as you grow and as you age and that's a really difficult thing everybody spends a huge amount of time learning how to sing when they are in their early 20s late teens early 20s mid 20s maybe if you're really lucky um but unfortunately as you as you you know have a career your your instrument changes and and so you you always have to learn about it um breathing is so important yeah. There's there's such a tendency to to stop breathing, or to just breathe in a shallow way, and and breathing is important. It relax relaxes your your muscles. It relaxes your throat muscles and your larynx and everything if you breathe properly. Um, I think things like hydration, um, things like sleep, these are things that can really help on tour. It's difficult to do that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think then when you actually sing, um, take as many breaks as you can. Um, yeah. It's, but again, there'll be projects that are vocally taxing and, and right. they're just, there's, there's just, there's just not much you can do about it. Right. Um, I think, I mean, <clears throat> in a weird way, it's almost as helpful the things that you do when you're not singing as the things that you do when you are singing. So, you know, don't if you have a break don't go and run around and scream like i mean it, it's just right, kind of that right. stuff but i mean I, I think you're probably looking for like vocal well, technique no, stuff as well and super, well, i mean that's super helpful too because i think i think even for me as someone who's like yeah i take voice lessons every summer and just kind of get re-vocal coaching even if it's just from a friend and we kind of exchange but it's like that perspective and it's like uh, us in america too we, we listen to those boy choristers and and all of the the british groups and we're just like 
they're machines. They could just sing all day, every day and never get tired. And they never, but, but so it's actually really helpful of like, yeah, it's still hard. Like it's not, you know, you make it look easy, but to make it look easy, it's really difficult. So this is the same thing that my, my like sophomore beginning level singers who are maybe just starting voice lessons hear the same thing from their voice teacher. It's like, whoa, this pro singer who's singing all the time says the same thing. So I think it's super helpful because it's clearly true principles. So I think, I think the other thing, um, there's a thing that I kind of call the early music ghetto. I don't know if, if, and, and it's, and it's this idea that early music is, is, is different and it's kind of, it should be that way. And we on the inside, you know, if you're on, if, if you're an early music enthusiast, you think that, you know, that you have sort of the knowledge and that everybody else is a kind of Philistine. And, and if, and if, and if you aren't, and, and if you think that early music is this kind of slightly strange thing that, that, some hippies have been doing for sort of 40 years I have this club over there and I just... yeah 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 then you think like well why would you want to do that why why do you want to make squeaky noises and and so 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 there is this kind of like you know difference i think vocally from a vocal perspective we have to try and break down that difference as much as possible and it's not a question of necessarily singing anything differently it's a question of of what are the basic vocal kind of concepts that you, that you take when you go and sing whatever music you sing. And that has to do, it has to do with the basics. It has to do with vocal technique that you learn when you're a teenager. So, you know, how do you stand and how do you breathe and, and, and what do you do with your tongue and what do you do with, with your, your lips? And, and it's, it's the basic kind of stuff that, that I think provides the healthy, or as healthy as possible platform upon which then to sing different kinds of music and, and maybe learn different sort of techniques and, and, um, and kind of move off of that. But, but from in just in terms of, of, of getting ill and, and staying, you know, uh, staying vocally safe. I, I, for me, it's, it's the basics. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. And I um, love the the idea of just because you look at some of these lines it, it doesn't matter what what time period but you look at like you take you know rock off all night vigil and then you take something like um allegri's miserere and you're like those are both just taxing pieces like different time periods different maybe slight aesthetic but really as a singer you've got mm. probably thinking almost the same exact thing like maybe a slight warming darkening of the sound in Rachmaninoff, but, but that all comes from the mouth up, you know, from the throat down. It's like, this is all the same thing. Yeah. 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 If you, if you sing, if you sing, if you sing Renaissance music from your shoulders or from your, from your, no, you know, from your, uh, from your rib cage, um, you're nowhere. Yeah. And, and, and you, you have to sing it from your abdomen and from your pelvic floor and all those sorts of places in exactly the same way that you'd sing anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. And uh, I guess then to, well, man, I could go on forever. This has like been so, so fantastic, but, Great. I, but I want to talk um, before I let you go to shift gears. 
I would love to hear about this, uh, the Canadian Renaissance Music Summer School. And yeah. all of that and how it came to be, what you guys do. I read a little bit of like, you know, what each day kind of would entail, at least when you did it in 2018, maybe or something. We did it in 2018 and 2019. And we had everything we had everything ready to go for 2020 and it was it was such a uh, you you have no idea but so so that yeah so the canadian renaissance music summer school it it, it, there's a few sort of strands to it when i was um very early on in in my sort of time in the uk Mm -hmm. i uh, ran into a, a bunch of of week-long residential summer schools that, that happen over here. And, and there are lots of them around and, and uh, some of them are in the UK and some of them are also led by UK musicians, but they take place on the continent. So in Italy and Spain and, and sort of nice things. And these are um, primarily sort of uh, patronized by um, the, 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 by amateur musicians. So, so sort of uh, enthusiastic um amateur musicians but crucially they're kind of expensive to go on so 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 the 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 kind of public that they that go on them are not often students because they're run they're run as businesses and and so it's not it's 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 the kind of people who go on these courses are the people who can pay to to go on them and and that's in no way to say that they're not great they're wonderful and in terms of the repertoire that they get that, that that happens on these things, they're fantastic. And the level of of sort of immersion that you get, and you go to somewhere beautiful, and yeah. you know you're in this like mountainside town in Spain, and 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 you're with a you know thirty people, and you're singing oh. polyphony for six or seven hours a day, and and it's amazing. It's totally wonderful. There are lots of these things, and there there were lots of them when I was young, and so I had. Uh, a, a lot of really great experiences on these kind of courses mm-hmm. and um, I didn't I didn't know of any that happened in Canada in that way certainly not in terms of renaissance music that happened I know that there are summer summer programs that happen in you know um, Amherst and and Banff and all sorts of places like that but in terms of specifically renaissance polyphonic music I didn't know of any that happened yeah. Um I kept in touch with a few Canadian musicians and singers, um, one of whom in particular uh, spent some time in the UK and, and I was in touch with him when he was here. So he's just sort of one of my friends and uh, he now lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And, and so I, you know, and he, he was telling me about sort of the, the, the scene out there, which, which is actually quite sophisticated and they have some chapel choirs and they, cool. they have some, some early music choirs and stuff. So, uh, and then I knew a little bit about what sort of thing happened in London, Ontario, where I, where I grew up and where my sister is, as I say, a, a musicologist at a place called Western University, which is a, a pretty, pretty well-established yeah. um, university in, in Canada. I knew a few people in Toronto, et cetera, et cetera. So I just thought, why can't we do this? Why can't we get a whole bunch of people together and sing Renaissance music for a week? And, yeah, and, and I think the other thing about, Canada in particular is that is that there's an enormous appetite but very little opportunity to Mm. to to do it so most students most choral amateurs 
will know who Palestrina is. They'll know who right. Bird is and Talus, and 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 they'll have heard of the Talus scholars, and 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 right. th- they might not have any specialist knowledge. They might not even really be that jazzed about the music, right. but but they will they will know that this exists. They probably will like it, but but it might be hard for them, or it it might be, um, it might be they might encounter it under the leadership of somebody who who didn't themselves feel very comfortable with it or, or or didn't really understand how it worked and and so it could have been a kind of pleasant but confusing experience for them or something and then they and then they the went on to the obligatory dead guy on there yeah 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 exactly and and, and 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 so it's not as though renaissance music is is it's just a total wasteland it's that it's that there's something there that 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 can be um that can be taken advantage of that's the wrong word i don't mean that like that the kind of you know that there's there's something there and and like a spring that just needs to be tapped kind of yeah and and i also felt that that and i remember this from growing up as a as a teenager that that renaissance music in particular was somebody else's music was 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 europeans music or yeah. English people's music, or Italian people's music, or it, right. but, but it was somebody else's music, and it but it wasn't. It's certainly not our music, right. and and I think that that's a terrible way of thinking about <laughs> Renaissance music. Absolutely. And and I and so what I wanted to try and do was to 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 say to show people that a the music isn't too hard. If it's in six parts and it's a cappella, that's okay, and and you can you can do it, and you need to work at it a little bit, but it's not too hard, and and it's also not sort of kept from you either behind the doors of a library or on the other side of an ocean. Yeah. Like it's it's the music is there for you, and you can do it, and you can you can come to it meaningfully, and you can yeah. you can have your own ideas about it, you can contribute to it. Um, it's not somebody else's music. It's not magic that's made by a magician over there. That it can be, that it can be yours. And and yeah. Um, and that's so important, I think, for the, um, for the health of the music itself. Like for the continued health of the music itself. That yeah. you have to, you have to show people that that it's not dusty and it's not old and it's not as i say we're going full circle it's not a curiosity that that it and that it's also not somebody else's that it's theirs and it can mean something and it and it can well i remember i remember on the first course we did we did one of um uh i don't know if you know the lagrime di san pietro by uh lassus orlando lasso orlando di lasso um my head yeah he wrote he wrote a um his his kind of amazing uh very very close to the end of his life uh um, he wrote a set of 21 motets uh, and they're in Italian and they're on this. It's a sacred theme. It's, it's all the theme of, of, of Peter's denial of, of oh. Christ in the, cool. the, the, the whole, that whole sort of story. Yeah. And, but they're Italian texts and they're very emotional, hugely personal yeah. uh, sort of psychological in some ways, quite dark yeah. Uh and the music is seven parts and it's uh, the texture is really thick and really constant. And yeah. the, 
words are hugely focused like each individual word means something and 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 these are amazing 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 pieces and we did one of them and we really had enough time to sort of really get into it and and people's i mean people's uh, i don't know it sounds arrogant to say but i think some people's minds got blown and yeah no it isn't and that's because to me it's like you know that's the way i view myself i'm just like no 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 look this music changed me i i am not doing this like this music is doing this don't you get it like you know and, and that sounds kind of condescending but that's not really the point either it's just like that's why i started this podcast and that's why because it's it it really is it it, it was at a, i discovered it kind of at an odd you know a time in my life that was really rough and then and i was like what why does no one sing this yeah. <laughs> no one sings this. And then I, you know, I had to dig to find people who sang it. And it was Dufai at the time. And it was like, whoa. Nice. And you just go from there and all of a sudden all of this kind of stuff. But yeah, the common person, I mean, my dad, my parents aren't musicians. My dad's like, just sing in English. Cause he looks <laughs> you know? like so that's my family background. So but again, I've done things that totally blew his mind. And and that's exactly kind of the 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 goal almost of every renaissance piece that i do and and i think that that's fantastic that i just wish i could have been there you know that just be a fly on the wall for that piece because that sounds so amazing well i mean well for one i mean you can do it if, like the piece is available you know the, yeah. the, um i mean and that's a, like a general thing to everybody like try this stuff and and if it if it's hard or if you don't get it right away or if you think what was that great guy about? Like, this isn't a good piece. Keep trying at it. Like, keep understanding. Look at the words. Look at the music. Look, look, tear it apart. Figure out how it works. And and it will reward you. Like it, it, yeah. it it's not, it's not, it's not going to fail to reward you. I think the other thing to realize is that, you know, we look at we look at the great geniuses of like humanity, and you know, Bach is one, and right. and you know, people like Newton and, and Einstein and stuff like Talus is one like he's and 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 i think that that so there is power there there is a a, a, an extraordinary magical mind that that is saying things and and desperately trying to um, pour something out of themselves like all geniuses do in every field and 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 it's the same kind of thing that later composers do, yeah. But it's 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 just a slightly different language. And but but the what's what's beneath it, what's being expressed, you know, the human condition, whatever, is exactly the same, totally the same. Yeah. Um. And and I also personally think that some of the specifics about Renaissance music are are kind of just golden magic things like the texture and 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 yeah. the, the simplicity of it and um one other thing that i like to think about is, is sort of economy of gesture so so the the economy of musical gesture so if you think of like Mahler eight you know there's like a thousand people on stage and 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 it's and it's huge and it's and it's great and it's cool um but then if you think of you know a josque motet like it's 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 economy there's one one note that's changed or one chord that's voiced differently or i mean for me the, the, a really good example of that is the victoria requiem the, the sixth voice oh, the, the the victoria requiem so i mean 
like three chords and 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 they're chords they're just triads like what's right. i don't get it why is that so cool but it is yeah everything around it is so much different than what we think today so when you put yourself in that context and you hear those chords all of a sudden those chords mean way more than you know yeah all are using three triads which is i mean that's a different anyway but well it's it's yeah. it's you know it's it's focus it's it's about it's about economy of it's economy of gesture but it's also like you as a as a listener or as a performer it's about what you focus on what how how fine-grained is your attention and yeah. and um and when you get into that in, into that space where you're looking for these 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 tiny moves that have a huge impact yeah. that's that's a, that's a different state of being as a, as a musician and, and as an artist and yeah. and for me it's it's a it's a fantastic state of being it's an amazing Absolutely. place to be the subtlety and and less is more kind of thing is is definitely you know something that resonates with me so I yeah think that's fantastic yeah yeah and yeah that primal that the of of seeing that well even if you you could break down Mahler eight it might be more of a stretch but the same principles i mean he's using the same building blocks musically and non-musically oh yeah how do we connect the audience isn't trained in how to think like that so let's just help them along a little bit the singers yeah, yeah. might not be either but we can do a little bit to help and I, I think that's awesome so yeah yeah totally well that's uh plenty of time i i <laughs> have loved this and i could seriously this has been so fun and makes you feel like i'm a student again just like learning a bunch so <laughs> oh, can i do can i do a little a, a little plug for for crumbs the, the canadian Mason Music summer school so we just literally announced our dates um and given that the world is the world at the moment we we normally would go in may and we're not going to go in may this year and right. instead we're going to go at the very very end of august and into september so the the vaccine rollout in canada is meant to be sort of well on the way or finished by that point and 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 the same thing with the vaccine rollout in the uk and i don't know i don't know what the state of the vaccine rollout for you guys is but um we definitely would like to have americans involved as well at at each of the last two we've had some american students involved and um and and actually i think you did an interview with um chris gabitas yes um one of one of his singers uh called uh, lauren braden was was oh, cool. was going to be coming on to 2020 and 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 wow. i hope she'll be coming to 2021 so so definitely open to all the website is crmss.org canadian renaissance music summer school crmss.org uh, and if you also go on facebook and twitter you can just search canadian renaissance music summer school uh and and you can find us on there as well um but the the planning stages are quite early at the moment we don't yet have an application deadline applications aren't open yet um we do have a sort of very straightforward application procedure but um but uh everybody is welcome you don't need an undergraduate degree but if you are an undergraduate it's definitely aimed at you and and at that level so it's so it's it's aimed at students and and recent graduates um and come to London, Ontario, in southern Southern Ontario, and sing Renaissance music with a bunch of people who love it. Uh, and uh, Robert Hollingworth, actually, we we're talking about Ifedzini. Robert Hollingworth is our our um, 
guest artist this year oh, so he's awesome. he's going to be there all week uh and i'll be there and um uh a, a woman called emily atkinson who sings the tell scholars is one of the tutors uh and and uh, we have a lutenist we're going to have some Sweet. some some lute players there yes. um so fantastic yeah and i'm going to be um i mean again no future pandemics i guess but just kind of annu- annually doing this yeah absolutely it's definitely going to be annually what what i'd really like to do is to start another one sure. on the west coast um uh and 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 that's we don't have concrete plans for that yet but that's an ambition for 2022 um but definitely annually uh and 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 possibly then do a a few different weeks maybe over the course of, of of a summer um and 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 from on from there on i don't know i mean i'd like to get some instrumentalists involved i'd like to to, to, we, we do quite a lot of solo singing as well, believe it or not. So, so that it's a, we, we try and, and come to Renaissance music uh, from as broad a perspective as we, pos- as we can. So definitely sacred music and secular music uh, and small groups and big groups and some solo singing. And uh, we put it in liturgical context and all that kind of stuff. So sure. that's awesome. If any, if anybody wants to email with any questions, you'll get straight to me uh, and it's info at crmss.org info at crumbs.org cool awesome fantastic Orlando Dilasso or Dilasus depending on how you say it. The cool thing about Orlando de Lasso is this is our first chance to talk about the Franco-Flemish area, the Fl- Franco-Flemish school. So where the H&M even is that? It's northern France, Belgium, southern ne- and kind of the southern Netherlands area that we know today was considered the Franco-Flemish area. The cool thing about Franco-Flemish is... That's really where some people consider the Renaissance, the re- well, one of the great father figures of Renaissance music is Josquin, and he was a Franco-Flemish composer. You also have Heinrich Isaac, Nicolas Gombert, and Jacobus Clemens non Papa, which is like you know Papa Roach or <laughs> something like that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I like saying his name, Jacobus Clemens non Papa. Anyway, that is Franco-Flemish. So he was the predecessor. The cool thing about Dilasso is he was the predecessor to Palestrina at his post in the Cathedral of San Giovanni in Rome, which is very cool. He was uniquely cosmopolitan, uh, Well, which is, I didn't know what that word meant until like two years ago, uh, which just means well-traveled for the time. More, yeah, more so than so many other Renaissance composers, than most. He taught the Gabriellis, who made a big, their big part of their career in Venice. Um, he built the size and resources and reputation of the court of Albrecht V of Bavaria in Munich to be 
basically one of the musical centers and kind of hotspots for music in all of Europe, including some of the places in Rome. It was rivaling some of those places in Rome. The choir was huge for that time with around 60 singers. So think about if you don't think you can do early music with an ensemble of 60, he was living in the time of quote-unquote early music with an ensemble of 60. So it's definitely doable. Um, So that right there breaks down the kind of breaks down the uh, stereotype that early music needs to be smaller ensembles. DeLasso was known for having an extraordinarily beautiful singing voice. I'm jealous. And he wrote buckets and buckets of music. 60 masses, 600 motets, 101 magnificats, 13 nunc dimittises, 18 lamentations, 4 passions, 200 Italian madrigals, 150 French chansons, and 90 German leader, which are all, you know, uh, secular songs. That's insane. That is so much music. That's over a thousand. Man, that's insane. There's not that many notes. I said that before, but I just don't think there's that many. I tried. I used as many as I could, and I ran out. And he dabbled with all kinds of stylistic elements, and I think that's really cool. So he has lots of imitative polyphony that's based on pre-existing material, taking short phrases from a motet or something and then creating new pieces based on a small part of that melody that are really imitative in nature. Homophonic textures with short phrases, word painting, polychoral things with multiple choirs. And sometimes he combines several of those techniques into one piece, whereas then other pieces would be more or less exclusively in one of those styles. Super diverse. The other cool thing about DeLasso is that he wrote 24 two-part pedagogical works known as Picinia. This is like a gold mine of Renaissance music for early choirs, for emerging choirs. This 24-piece little collection. One of them that's really good is Sancta Mei. It would be awesome for a men's chorus to be introduced into polyphonic singing. The ranges are really narrow, like an octave. Uh, Maybe even less. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's pretty small. It's short. The Latin is easy. Sanctum, and it's it could be done in a really fun way. Go look up Sanctamei. He also wrote 12 other two-part motets. So there's so many. I have, I'll have links to both of those collections in uh, on the blog on our website, soundofageschoir.com. And, man, there's just such a hotbed of stuff for beginning choirs. That's 36 pieces to look through and to explore. So amazing. Go do it. Oh, it's awesome. An intermediate piece would be his chanson, Il 
et toi une religieuse, which is in French, since it's a chanson, I guess, obviously. It's SATB. There's great polyphony in it. It's not the most exciting in terms of, like, holy cow, all these amazingly expressive moments. But each line is really singable. And it goes back to our discussion about the economy of sound. You could take some really basic elements and explore those and expand those into something beautiful. The tempo is moderate. The rhythms are not complex. The French is not overly wordy. And it's this incredible story of a nun and a priest getting caught in the act, quote, all a bother, unquote. Hmm, pretty saucy stuff. And it would be hilarious. Um, an intervanced piece, kind of more challenging than intermediate, but not super advanced either, would be his motet, Illumina Oculos Meos. We've already talked about a piece of that same title. Uh, but this one is for SATB. And it expresses his famous perfect points of imitation style, where it is clear as day when the next part comes in with that point of imitation, the same melody coming in four times in a row, one in each part, and then breaking off into their own polyphonic texture. The polyphony is not complex, uh, well, it's not as complex as it may visually appear at first because, again, each line has great melodic shape and could be learned fairly quickly. So then as an advanced piece, as, we, as was mentioned by Greg in our interview, is the collection of 21 Italian motets telling the story of Peter these are amazing pieces that I didn't know about, but listening to them was a real treat. It really was. It, they're so expressive, more so kind of, of what you would think of maybe in a madrigal or, you know, kind of or a, a secular style. But, and it's in Italian, so it feels like a madrigal, but it's a, sec, a sacred theme. But it can be done in a way that's in a secular setting because you can kind of um, apply the different bits of the story that are told in each of the motets in different situations. It's really cool and really versatile. So um, one that sets a good example of the rest of them, I guess an uh, exemplary one would be Il Magnanimo Pietro. Um, the And like Greg said, the texture is thick and constant. This particular motet has a good variety of rhythmic diversity and textural shifts, which is really cool. Some of them are more um, homogenous in its texture than this one is. The rhythms are a bit tricky. The Italian is really fun to sing. The harmonic language is not as chromatic as some of his earlier works, but there are definite moments of, you know, dissonance and resolution and 
Oh, such cool stuff. There's so much music to explore. I spent hours just like pouring over his music and kind of refreshing my memory from my grad work. And I have forgotten the greatness of the Delasso. Um, be sure to go and look some of those things up and check out Orlando Di Lasso. Thanks for tuning into the show today, hearing some of my thoughts about the economy of sound and subtlety. Got to hear some really cool things from Greg's, Greg Skidmore. I hope you go check out the Canadian um, Renaissance Music Summer School. I hope you go check out Ifa Jolini, all the other groups that he sings in and kind of follow him. He's got some really cool stuff coming up uh, going on in Canada and in England. And we were able to dive into a little bit of Orlando de Lasso's music. Be sure to like and subscribe and leave a review. Give us a rating, the five stars, the great reviews, all the things. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday. <laughs>